Section 15 of Chapter 20 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 20, Section 15. Meanwhile, the Commons had entered upon business. They cheerfully voted about £2,400,000 for the army and as much for the navy. The land tax for the year was fixed again at four shillings in the pound. The Tonnage Act was renewed for a term of five years, and a fund was established on which the government was authorised to borrow two millions and a half. Some time was spent by both houses in discussing the Manchester trials. If the malcontents had been wise, they would have been satisfied with the advantage which they had already gained. Their friends had been set free. The prosecutors had with difficulty escaped from the hands of an enraged multitude. The character of the government had been seriously damaged. The ministers were accused, in prose and in verse, sometimes in earnest and sometimes in jest, of having hired a gang of ruffians to swear away the lives of honest gentlemen. Even moderate politicians, who gave no credit to these foul imputations, owned that Trenchard ought to have remembered the villainies of Fuller and Young, and to have been on his guard against such wretches as Taff and Lunt. The unfortunate secretary's health and spirits had given way. It was said that he was dying, and it was certain that he would not long continue to hold the seals. The Tories had won a great victory, but, in their eagerness to improve it, they turned it into a defeat. Early in the session Howe complained, with his usual vehemence and asperity, of the indignities to which innocent and honourable men, highly descended and highly esteemed, had been subjected by Aaron Smith and the wretches who were in his pay. The leading Whigs, with great judgment, demanded an inquiry. Then the Tories began to flinch. They well knew that an inquiry could not strengthen their case and might well weaken it. The issue, they said, had been tried, a jury had pronounced, the verdict was definitive, and it would be monstrous to give the false witnesses who had been stoned out of Manchester an opportunity of repeating their lesson. To this argument the answer was obvious. The verdict was definitive as respected the defendants, but not as respected the prosecutors. The prosecutors were now in their turn defendants, and were entitled to all the privileges of defendants. It did not follow, because the Lancashire gentleman had been found, and very properly found, not guilty of treason, that the Secretary of State or the Solicitor of the Treasury had been guilty of unfairness or even of rashness. The House, by 119 votes to 102, resolved that Aaron Smith and the witnesses on both sides should be ordered to attend. Several days were passed in examination and cross-examination, and sometimes the sittings extended far into the night. It soon became clear that the prosecution had not been lightly instituted, and that some of the persons who had been acquitted had been concerned in treasonable schemes. The Tories would now have been content with a drawn battle, but the Whigs were not disposed to forego their advantage. It was moved that there had been a sufficient ground for the proceedings before the Special Commission, and this motion was carried without a division. The opposition proposed to add some words implying that the witnesses for the Crown had forsworn themselves, but these words were rejected by 136 votes to 109, and it was resolved by 133 votes to 97 that there had been a dangerous conspiracy. 
the lords had been meanwhile been deliberating on the same subject and had come to the same conclusion they sent taff to prison for prevarication and they passed resolutions acquitting both the government and the judges of all blame the public however continued to think that the gentlemen who had been tried at manchester had been unjustifiably persecuted till a jacobite plot of singular atrocity brought home to the plotters by decisive evidence produced a violent revulsion of feeling meanwhile three bills which had been repeatedly discussed in preceding years and two of which had been carried in vain to the foot of the throne had been again brought in the place bill the bill for the regulation of trials in cases of treason and the triennial bill the place bill did not reach the lords it was thrice read in the lower house but was not passed at the very last moment it was rejected by a hundred and seventy-five votes to a hundred and forty-two howe and barley were the tellers for the minority the bill for the regulation of trials in cases of treason went up again to the peers their lordships again added to it the clause which had formerly been fatal to it the commons again refused to grant any new privilege to the hereditary aristocracy conferences were again held reasons were again exchanged both houses were again obstinate and the bill was again lost the triennial bill was more fortunate it was brought in on the first day of the session and went easily and rapidly through both houses the only question about which there was any serious contention was how long the existing parliament should be suffered to continue after several sharp debates november in the year sixteen ninety six was fixed as the extreme term the tonnage bill and the triennial bill proceeded almost side by side both were on the twenty second of december ready for the royal assent william came in state on that day to westminster the attendance of members of both houses was large when the clerk of the crown read the words a bill for the frequent calling and meeting of parliaments the anxiety was great when the clerk of the parliament made answer le roy et la roine le volant a loud and long hum of delight and exultation rose from the benches and the bar william had resolved many months before not to refuse his assent a second time to so popular a law there was some however who thought that he would not have made so great a concession if he had on that day been quite himself it was plain indeed that he was strangely agitated and unnerved it had been announced that he would dine in public at whitehall but he disappointed the curiosity of the multitude which on such occasions flocked to the court and hurried back to kensington he had but too good reason to be uneasy his wife had during two or three days been poorly and on the preceding evening grave symptoms had appeared sir thomas millington who was physician in ordinary to the king thought that she had the measles but ratcliffe who with coarse manners and little book learning had raised himself to the first practice in london chiefly by his rare skill in diagnostics uttered the more alarming words smallpox that disease over which science has since achieved a succession of glorious and beneficent victories was then the most terrible of all the ministers of death the havoc of the plague had been far more rapid but the plague had visited our shores only once or twice within living memory and the smallpox was always present filling the churchyards with corpses tormenting with constant fears all whom it had not yet stricken 
leaving on those whose lives it spared the hideous traces of its power, turning the babe into a changeling at which the mother shuddered, and making the eyes and cheeks of the betrothed maiden objects of horror to the lover. Towards the end of the year 1694 this pestilence was more than usually severe. At length the infection spread to the palace, and reached the young and blooming queen. She received the intimation of her danger with true greatness of soul. She gave orders that every lady of her bedchamber, every maid of honour, nay, every menial servant who had not had the smallpox, should instantly leave Kensington House. She locked herself up during a short time in her closet, burned some papers, arranged others, and then calmly awaited her fate. During two or three days there were many alternations of hope and fear. The physicians contradicted each other and themselves in a way which sufficiently indicates the state of medical science in that age. The disease was measles. It was scarlet fever. It was spotted fever. It was erysipsilas. At one moment some symptoms, which in truth showed that the case was almost hopeless, were hailed as indications of returning health. At length all doubt was over. Radcliffe's opinion proved to be right. It was plain that the Queen was sinking under smallpox of the most malignant type. At this time William remained night and day near her bedside. The little couch on which he slept when he was in camp was spread for him in the antechamber, but he scarcely lay down on it. The sight of his misery, the Dutch envoy wrote, was enough to melt the hardest heart. Nothing seemed to be left of the man whose serene fortitude had been the wonder of old soldiers on the disastrous day of Landon, and of old sailors on that fearful night among the sheets of ice and banks of sand on the coast of Goree. The very domestics saw the tears running unchecked down that face of which the stern composure had seldom been disturbed by any triumph or by any defeat. Several of the prelates were in attendance. The King drew Burnet aside, and gave way to an agony of grief. "'There is no hope,' he cried. "'I was the happiest man on earth, and I am the most miserable. She had no fault, none. You knew her well, but you could not know, nobody but myself could know her goodness.' Tennyson undertook to tell her that she was dying. He was afraid that such a communication, abruptly made, might agitate her violently, and began with much management. But she soon caught his meaning, and, with that gentle womanly courage which so often puts our bravery to shame, submitted herself to the will of God. She called for a small cabinet in which her most important papers were locked up, gave orders that, as soon as she was no more it should be delivered to the King, and then dismissed worldly cares from her mind. She received the Eucharist and repeated her part of the office with unimpaired memory and intelligence, though in a feeble voice. She observed that Tennyson had been long standing at her bedside, and, with that sweet courtesy which was habitual to her, faltered out her commands that he should sit down, and repeated them till he obeyed. After she had received the sacrament she sank rapidly, and uttered only a few broken words. Twice she tried to take a last farewell of him whom she had loved so truly and entirely, but she was unable to speak. He had a succession of fits so alarming that his privy councillors, 
who were assembled in a neighbouring room, were apprehensive for his reason and his life. The Duke of Leeds, at the request of his colleagues, ventured to assume the friendly guardianship of which minds deranged by sorrow stand in need. A few minutes before the Queen expired, William was removed, almost insensible, from the sick-room. Mary died in peace with Anne. Before the physicians had pronounced the case hopeless, the Princess, who was then in very delicate health, had sent a kind message, and Mary had returned a kind answer. The Princess had then proposed to come herself, but William had, in very gracious terms, declined the offer. The excitement of an interview, he said, would be too much for both sisters. If a favourable turn took place, Her Royal Highness should be most welcome to Kensington. A few hours later, all was over. The public sorrow was great and general. For Mary's blameless life, her large charities and her winning manners had conquered the hearts of her people. When the Commons next met, they sat for a time in profound silence. At length it was moved and resolved that an address of condolence should be presented to the King, and then the House broke up without proceeding to any other business. The Dutch envoy informed the States-General that many of the members had handkerchiefs at their eyes. The number of sad faces in the street struck every observer. The mourning was more general than even the mourning for Charles the Second had been. On the Sunday which followed the Queen's death, her virtues were celebrated in almost every parish church of the capital, and in almost every great meeting of nonconformists. The most estimable Jacobites respected the sorrow of William and the memory of Mary. But to the fiercer zealots of the party neither the house of mourning nor the grave was sacred. At Bristol the adherents of Sir John Knight rang the bells as if for a victory. It has often been repeated, and is not at all improbable, that a non-juring divine in the midst of the general lamentation preached on the text, Go see now this cursed woman, and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. It is certain that some of the ejected priests pursued her to the grave with invectives. Her death, they said, was evidently a judgment for her crime. God had, from the top of Sinai, and thunder, and lightning, promised length of days to children who should honour their parents, and in this promise was plainly implied a menace. What father had ever been worse treated by his daughters than James, by Mary and Anne? Mary was gone, cut off in the prime of life, in the glow of beauty, in the height of prosperity, and Anne would do well to profit by the warning. Wagstaff went further, and dwelt much on certain wonderful coincidences of time. James had been driven from his palace and country in Christmas week. Mary had died in Christmas week. There could be no doubt that, if the secrets of Providence were disclosed to us, we should find that the turns of the daughter's complaint in December 1694 bore an exact analogy to the turns of the father's fortune in December 1688. It was at midnight that the father ran away from Rochester. It was at midnight that the daughter expired. Such was the profundity and such the ingenuity of a writer whom the Jacobite schismatics justly regarded as one of their ablest chiefs. The Whigs soon had an opportunity of retaliating. 
They triumphantly related that a scrivener in the borough, a staunch friend of hereditary right, while exulting in the judgment which had overtaken the Queen, had himself fallen down dead in a fit. The funeral was long remembered as the saddest and most august that Westminster had ever seen. While the Queen's remains lay in state at Whitehall, the neighbouring streets were filled every day, from sunrise to sunset, by crowds which made all traffic impossible. The two houses, with their maces, followed the hearse. The lords robed in scarlet and ermine, the commons in long black mantles. No preceding sovereign had ever been attended to the grave by a Parliament, for, till then, the Parliament had always expired with the sovereign. A paper had indeed been circulated in which the logic of a small, sharp pettifogger was employed to prove that writs, issued in the joint names of William and Mary, ceased to be of force as soon as William reigned alone. But this paltry cavil had completely failed. It had not even been mentioned in the lower house, and had been mentioned in the upper, only to be contemptuously overruled. The whole magistracy of the city swelled the procession. The banners of England and France, Scotland and Ireland, were carried by great nobles before the corpse. The pall was borne by the chiefs of the illustrious houses of Howard, Seymour, Grey, and Stanley. On the gorgeous coffin of purple and gold were laid the crown and sceptre of the realm. The day was well suited to such a ceremony. The sky was dark and troubled and a few ghastly flakes of snow fell on the black plumes of the funeral car. Within the abbey, nave, choir, and transept were in a blaze with innumerable wax-lights. The body was deposited under a magnificent canopy in the centre of the church, while the primate preached. The earlier part of his discourse was deformed by pedantic divisions and subdivisions, but towards the close he told what he himself had seen and heard, with a simplicity and earnestness more affecting than the most skilful rhetoric. Through the whole ceremony the distant booming of cannon was heard every minute from the batteries of the tower. The gentle queen sleeps among her illustrious kindred in the southern aisle of the chapel of Henry the Seventh. The affection with which her husband cherished her memory was soon attested by a monument the most superb that was ever erected to any sovereign. No scheme had been so much her own, none had been so near her heart, as that of converting the palace at Greenwich into a retreat for seamen. It had occurred to her, when she had found it difficult to provide good shelter and good attendance for the thousands of brave men who had come back to England wounded after the Battle of La Hogue. While she lived, scarcely any step was taken toward the accomplishing of her favourite design. But it should seem that, as soon as her husband had lost her, he began to reproach himself for having neglected her wishes. No time was lost. A plan was furnished by Wren, and soon an edifice, surpassing that asylum which the magnificent Lewis had provided for his soldiers, rose on the margin of the Thames. Whoever reads the inscription which runs round the frieze of the hall will observe that William claims no part of the merit of the design, and that the praise is ascribed to Mary alone. Had the King's life been prolonged till the works were completed, 
a statue of her who was the real foundress of the institution, would have had a conspicuous place in the court which presents two lofty domes and two graceful colonnades to the multitudes who are perpetually passing up and down the imperial river. But that part of the plan was never carried into effect, and few of those who gaze on the noblest of European hospitals are aware that it is a memorial of the virtues of the good Queen Mary, of the love and sorrow of William, and of the great victory of La Hogue. End of section 15 End of chapter 20 of The History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay